tonight on Arena. Conductor Leonard Slatkin on the music of the great American composers and Billy Roach on the new production of his play, Such As We. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Internationally acclaimed conductor Leonard Slatkin returns to the National Concert Hall in Dublin this month for three concerts with the National Symphony Orchestra on the 17th, the 24th and the 25th of November. These events will feature Wayne Marshall on piano, soprano Elizabeth Watts, baritone Mark Stone, as well as Irish musician Jesse Grimes and music written by George Gershwin, Aaron Copeland, Samuel Barber, Felix Mendelssohn, Benjamin Britten and Vaughan Williams. Lots in there to delight the musical palette and no matter what that palette might enjoy. Delighted to have Leonard Slatkin with me in studio once again this Thrilled evening. to be back with you. And I have to say, Leonard, I, I looked at the, the what was in front of you in these three concerts, although it's, I guess really it's it's two big concerts and then the, the third concert, those symphony Correct. shorts kind of extracts little bits from what you've been doing for family audiences, which is a lovely idea. Um, and I thought, that's that's a lot of very big music that you have to get through during a, well, for a two-week period. I've done it for a few years now. <laughs> it's not exactly like this is unfriendly territory. I'm at the point where I look at September when I'll turn 80, and what I'm seeing now in my life is the opportunity to revisit music. Instead of doing all the new music I used to do, it's re-evaluating and re-examining the pieces that I thought I knew well, but now I think I know a little better. Oh, that's interesting because the, 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 the first concert, which is on the 17th, I thought, well, this is this is Leonard at home, if you like, uh, Leonard Slatkin, is. really exploring the music of his compatriots of three of the really great American composers, Aaron Copeland, Samuel Barber and, and George Gershwin. They kind of are a vital triumvirate, if you like, for the early part of the 20th century. They really are. You had Copeland born in 1900, who basically saw what happened in music. We didn't have music for the concert hall at that point when he was born. But then when we got to the 20s, Gershwin arrives on the scene, takes the popular culture, the vernacular of the time, and brings it to a whole new audience, some of who really didn't like it, Hmm. but many who did, and he changed the course of music. Copeland comes along, introduces at first very thorny elements of music that he had studied in Europe, but when he comes back to America in the mid-1920s, he's producing this unique music that couldn't have been written anywhere else, and which will, of course, culminate in Mm. the third symphony that we're going to hear, but also his famous ballets like Billy the Kid, Rodeo, Appalachian Spring. And then you have Samuel Barber, the kind of throwback composer who you had to pull, kicking and screaming, into the 20th century. We all know his revered adagio for strings. And that actually does summarize Barber, whose ethic was much more romantic than Mm. the other composers. You can't describe him as being American in the sense that you can do that with Copeland and Gershwin. Yeah. Barber comes more international baggage. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would think of Adagio Springs um, from, um, the name of the film has gone straight out of my head. Well, it's in Platoon. Platoon, it's gone right out of my head as I went to say it. And and that wonderful, you know, 
sadness, that elegy that it really is. That well, it actually starts its life as just a movement of a string yeah. quartet. We yeah. put this other meaning to it, just the same as people put a meaning to Nimrod from Enigma Variations. People think it's this music of sadness. No, it's a tribute to his closest friend. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and they, in the case, and anyway, we should rather than confuse things. The Barber piece that you're playing is very different from that adagio, yes. anyway. Although it ends. Very much in the adagio for strings mold, but more triumphant. As yeah, it yes, it's different. I want to go to the Gershwin because I'm interested in how, what what you've said about kind of Gershwin changing the course, if you like, of, of American music. You think of George Gershwin, you think of him and his brother. Many people will think immediately of the wonderful songs. They'll think of Rhapsody in Blue, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, an American in Paris. Music like that, that definitely has a very jazzy feel to it. But I've chosen a little section, a bit into the first movement of the work, uh, which we've heard a little bit of piano at this time, but the orchestra comes in in full force at this point in the piece. There you go, <laughs> with just a little bit of the the opening movement of the Concerto in F of George Gershwin, which um, the National Symphony Orchestra, Wayne Marshall will be the soloist on the night, Leonard Slatkin conducting. You were shouting, <laughs> you were shouting at them to slow down as you yeah, were listening to that. that's fast. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't want to know who did that. <laughs> no, you're not. You're, obviously, you're not good to go that route. No. With it. But what, what, what I wanted to play that section because you do hear echoes of Rhapsody in Blue in there. You hear the syncopation of the jazz music that we associate with Gershwin but there's also something else going on. Well, what what a, is that? A lot of it is that Gershwin is not really a jazz composer. He's writing the vernacular music of the time. If you listen a certain way, what you hear is a connection to ragtime, right. the music that came before. Mm. And the swing era has not happened yet. It's coming. So you off air had the right word exactly, the syncopation, which means displacing where your foot normally goes down. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. I got rhythm, I got rhythm. And in a funny way, that's the perfect song because it doesn't have rhythm. It mm. has something else. It's taking us out of our normal comfort zone. It's not a waltz. It's not a polka. It's making our feet come down and think in a different place. And that's what Gershwin brings. It is the world of popular music that people were entertained by brought to the concert hall, which had not happened in America yet. Mm. It had happened in Europe with composers like Dias Mio and Igor Stravinsky. They were using these things they heard in the clubs, especially in Paris. Yeah. Paris was the hotbed of jazz, not the States at the time. Yeah, So, I, and, and that, as you say, I got rhythm. The only way you can sing and play that is if you really have rhythm, because you have to kind of let the rhythm be heard silently. That's exactly in, right. In your head. And the other aspect of that is, if you think of what he was doing there and orchestrally what he was doing there, you think a little bit later on to Bernstein and even things like Dialogue could be in America, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. This is the forerunner of that style of music. It is. And I always say with Gershwin, one must always have the image of Fred Astaire, realizing that there are people listening who have no idea who Fred Astaire was. <laughs> but he, he had that elegance on screen, mm. that persona, 
that really reflected that time. Because if nothing else, Gershwin is not a raw composer. He's always elegant, as was Astaire. Now, you, you, you mentioned Aaron Copeland and that the, the heart of the, the concert on the 17th is the Symphony Number no. 3 of, of Aaron Copeland. I want to listen to just the opening section where the, the third movement melds into the fourth movement. And there's something very familiar yes. at the beginning of this fourth movement. So there is the the opening section. I suppose it's where the third movement of the Copes, the third symphony of Aaron Copland, moves into the fourth movement, and a very familiar tune, fanfare for the common man, the music of Aaron Copland. I was asking you, Leonard Slatkin, as we were listening there, the fanfare itself as a separate entity existed before this symphony. It did. It was part of a group of commissions during wartime. A symphony is written in 1946, but in 1944. The Cincinnati Symphony, who was under the direction of Sir Eugene Goosens, commissioned fanfares for each of its concerts during one season. But they were mostly for government organizations. So there was a fanfare for the Army. There was a fanfare for the Navy. There was a fanfare for the post office. (laughs) So Copeland was commissioned to write one. And he kind of forgot about when it was going to be. And he asked, when is the premiere? And the conductor told him it was going to be on on March 15. And... In those days, March 15 was the day when Americans paid their taxes. And that's how Copeland came up with the name, Fanfare for the Common Man. Yeah, he's he's going, yes, I have my tax return finished. (laughs) Maybe not so happy about what's been asked of them in that tax return. So so the question is, why is he putting this in the symphony? Mm. Because as this last moment develops and as the music from the other movements is brought back in combination, he realizes this makes a perfect summing up. The symphony is there because even though it's 46 and the war is over, America needs, like every place in the world, continued moral support to really pull us out of it. Mm. And he wanted that one big symphonic statement to say that, and he does. It probably is the most significant work in the form by an American composer, although there are other great yeah, symphonies. Yeah, and I must say, when you hear the, the, the melody of the fanfare on the woodwind at the beginning of that fourth movement, you hear it, you hear it in a very different way. Absolutely. And as the movement progresses, he really explores that big fanfare, really delves into the, the melody and, of it. And, and keep it. in mind, of course, most people when the symphony was written, had not heard the fanfare. Yeah, so it was so a new piece know. to them. They, it was a totally, it was yeah. a totally, totally new uh, piece. Now, if, if the fanfare is big and, and rambunctious, it doesn't compare to one of the pieces that you're playing in the second concert. The second concert, you're moving away from the American thing that's there in the first concert. The second concert brings us certainly to ma- matters maritime. There's no doubt about that. There's a, a Mendelssohn overture. Uh, there's music by Benjamin Britten. But the heart of this is a massive work uh, by Vaughan Williams. Here's the opening section of the Vaughan Williams Sea Symphony.
So that is how Vaughan Williams' Sea Symphony opens. It will be part of the second concert that Leonard Slatkin is conducting with the National Symphony Orchestra. This is on the 24th of November. It demands massive forces, uh, that one, Leonard. It's a large chorus, two soloists, full orchestra and organ, of course. And it does come very much from the English choral tradition. But the idea that Von Williams would, as his first symphony, choose to put a chorus in when there's that other composer who waited until his ninth to do it, that took a lot of cheek, I think. Mm. And to do it on such a large scale, taking this poetry of Walt Whitman, equating the sea as a metaphor for life or yeah. God for whatever you want to do, it, it's absolutely a huge work. And the mastery he had at such a young age to do it. It's extraordinary. Yeah, because it, well, obviously Beethoven's choral symphony is, is that ninth symphony. And as you say, he waited until then. Now he did change the face of the symphony yes. across the nine symphonies that he wrote. D- d- is there any sense then in which, I mean, people often say, you know, where's Beethoven 10? And there are lots of theories about whose yes. first symphony is Beethoven 10. But you're suggesting that in some ways um, Vaughan Williams was entering into that competition, if you like, to be Beethoven's Or just say, I'm going to get it out of the way right now. <laughs> That's it. I'm not going to worry about it. He would go on to use a, a women's chorus again in his seventh symphony. No words, though, just mm. humming. And vocalese. Vocalese. Yeah. But this one, in some ways, it's not exactly a symphony. It follows symphonic format, four movements, scherzo in there, the formal structure is the same, but it's really more reflecting, reflection of, of feeling and I think more, as we mentioned at the beginning, following the English choral tradition, it meant a lot to Vaughan Williams. I mean, here was a man who had these faces of music. You had in this piece a kind of pastoral version using poetry going on and on. There's not much violent in it, even in the scherzo. Uh, and then you had the more pastoral elements like this in yeah. this piece, but you had the more urban ones in his fourth and sixth symphony where the language is so different harmonically for the orchestra. He could really adjust to different styles, perhaps greater than any other English composer. Uh, the poetry of Walt Whitman uh, you know, being amplified <laughs> to this yeah. huge kind of choral rendition rather than, you know, a, an inner... A personal right. lyrical and we, and rendition. We think of Whitman with the transcendentalists and all the people who were uh, writing at the time as being inward, mm. and yet this piece is not inward at all. It really lays yeah. it out there by this opening: "Behold the sea." And even as you you were as as you were we were listening, it's, it goes "Behold," and then the sea moves up. A, I don't know how, how what it is in terms of does it change key, but it goes into a totally it's it's one tune and it becomes something totally yeah, it, different as the sea is happens. It, it moves. Sung. It moves, and the soloists have such beautiful vocal lines to deliver. There are so many memorable moments. In this piece. There, yeah, there's a soprano and a baritone solo. Soprano, baritone, who uh, really only sing together in the last movement. Mm. They, they don't serve uh, in the same way, say, that Beethoven does. They're telling a story. Yeah. And the story's about their reflections on what, what matters to us in life. 
That's what the whole piece is. Yeah, about. so it is it is a reflection rather than a big uh, and, pro- programmatic representation and, and of it, the it, sea. It ends with the sea ebbing and going away, and the music just fades as that wave disappears, mm-hmm. and we know it's going to come back, but we don't hear it. This is a the the concert on the twenty fourth is also celebrating the one hundred and seventy fifth anniversary of the Royal Irish Academy. And obviously, you will have members of the RIAM Philharmonia will be there. I think there will be some young players, mm-hmm. essentially student players or players about to embark on their professional careers within the mix for the very large forces that are required here. How important, obviously, it's one of the major musical education institutes in, in this country. What are your thoughts on the nature of music education. I know this is a big question, but the nature of music education and what the important aspects of it are, not just for professional musicians, for the general public. It's a big question. And there is no single answer other than to imagine, horrifically, what would happen if our lives were devoid of this music, particularly played by young people. It's a world where imagination would disappear. Music is about that. It's about the creative force in all of us, the ability to translate lines and circles into sound. And those sounds are not words. They're abstract They make us think. They make us create. That's what all the arts are about. And we see it throughout the world where education for our young people, particularly in the public school sector in the United States, sadly, it's just going away. And as it disappears, we're never going to get it back. Uh, It is incumbent on pretty much everybody to go to their local councils, to whatever you can, whoever you can speak to, to say, please help funding so we can get arts education properly into the schools the same way we have our sciences, the same way we have our sports. Not saying to eliminate them, of course, but please put put the arts on an equal level as they used to be. Well, you're preaching to the converted, I would say, listening to uh, many of the people listening to this program. But that's a very important statement that you've made. And of course, the other concert on the 25th, the day after this, is a symphonic shorts, which is designed for a family audience, um, you know, using some of the... And that's important because what happens is young people coming to the concert not only see the professional musicians of the National Symphony, they see other young people playing on stage. They relate to their peers. And if you see it, then there's a possibility that you can do it. That's always there, isn't it? Leonard, beautiful to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for sharing Great to see you again. See you again next season. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? And we'll celebrate your 81st birthday. We will. (laughs) Leonard Slatkin is returning to the National Concert Hall. Uh, Three concerts, as I say, with the National Symphony Orchestra, 17th, 24th and 25th of November. And you'll get full details on nch.ie. On Such As We is a Christmas time play from Billy Roach, author of the Wexford Trilogy and Cavalcaders. It brings us this new this play on Such As We into Oni's Barbershop and the various lost souls who inhabit that particular space. 
It's been called a rarely staged gem and over 20 years after its first outing in twenty in 2001, Decadent Theatre bring us a new production and it will be at the National Opera House in Wexford at the end of the month. Delighted to have Billy Roach with me in, in studio this evening. I, I was saying to you, Billy, I said, I, I don't think I've ever seen on such as we on stage before. I'm not alone. No, my answer to that is neither have I. <laughs> um, <laughs> Until now. <laughs> the first time round, I, I did get to see a preview. and mm. uh, But I was uh, I was in the Cavalcaders in London at the time, so it was a quick dart over. And uh, Brendan Gleeson was playing the part of Oni. Yeah. So um, you could imagine... I, I can see I him. Really I really wanted to be in two places at the one time. I can imagine. And Gareth Lambert is playing the part of Oni this time. Gareth around. Lombard, yeah. And you can see you can see the parallels, yeah. I suppose, in terms of casting in that in that particular regard. Talk to us a little bit about Oni, who he is, and this wonderful space, this barber shop where you've set the piece. Yeah, Oni's a local barber. Um, I suppose he's an old-fashioned man. Um, he uh, the shop becomes a kind of a need. Uh, for all these uh, lost souls, lost is what souls, I'm referring to them as. Yes, lost souls. Yeah, yeah. who come in and uh, you know, I mean, he's not a, a walking saint or anything. No, but, he's but, not. But he has, he, he kind of with a rough-hewed understanding, and uh, he, he he certainly tries to to help them as much as he can, even though his own life is not. Uh, Exactly, a, a model, you know. Yeah, well, he, he even says himself, I think, at one point along the way, he, he's at, at loggerheads with his wife. They're, they're essentially separated. Yes. She, she ran him out of the house. Um, he says, I think somebody asks, why, 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 did, why did you leave? And he's no, I didn't leave. I, I, I was asked to go yeah. gambling and rambling. Rambling and gambling. <laughs> rambling and gambling yeah, yeah. Were, his two, were his two problems. Yeah, I suspect he's a small town, you know, a dart player uh, and all that goes with that, and the greyhounds and GAA, and yeah, he's a, he's a he's a small town man. And then this this barber shop, a barber shop is such a great place to set something because, of course, people come and go on a regular basis. That's it. My my, uh, if you look back at my work, I uh, unknowingly, I suppose, have been tiptoeing my way up this Wexford Street from shop to shop and building to building. And I do love workplaces and places where things can happen other than mm. the story. And, you know, it, it certainly adds a little bit of magic to uh, to uh, the movement of a yeah. play. Yeah. Well, you I mean, people will know um, the Wexford trilogy. In some ways, people would say that this play could be, could be it could become the Wexford Quartet. It does follow on, or it certainly tells yes. a similar type of community to the, those we meet in, in in your other plays. Oni and, and his pals who are there. There's a, a nephew, a, an uncle and nephew grouping in here, and that's quite an interesting relationship to explore. Yes, and uh, I'm not sure if he's his real uncle. Yeah, he might yeah. be married to his aunt. I, I, yeah, I yeah. haven't quite figured out. Or even just the way yeah. often was the case, a, a friend of yeah, the family no, might no, be referred to as an uncle. Related, but it might be true marriage. Uh, yeah. Um, does yeah. that, that the uncle nephew relationship, does it remove, I, I'm, I suppose, in some ways, the the kind of the hex that often a father-son relationship or a mother-daughter relationship might have, the kind of the, the difficulties rubbing up against each other. The, the love between the two of them seems to be fairly straightforward. Yeah, I suppose it's not, you know, it's not as deep, probably. Mm. Um, at one stage, uh, Eddie, you're talking about Eddie, who's a kind of a... He's the young guy, he's a, the nephew. A bruiser. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't like him, but yet somehow 
I think we do like him. Um, but at one stage, oh, he steps out of line and the uncle says, if I was a younger man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, uh, the answer to that is uh, my uncle Richie, where he is. Yeah. But there's no chance of that happening. Yeah. Um, Richie is Richie is the, is the older yeah. uncle. You also have two women in, in the mix here. And quite interesting, uh, particularly Oni has his eye on, on one of the women who's just opened a boutique ac- across the street. Yes. Her marital situation is interesting. In terms of where we are in time, we're in 1992. Yes. Just pre, just as things are beginning to take off before the dreaded Celtic Tiger. One, we're on the cusp of the Celtic Tiger and Maeve, who has opened a shop across the, boutique across the street, is married to PJ, who um, believes in the Celtic Tiger and he's buying up everything that moves. Um, I suppose he represents progress in a way there's nothing wrong with that except mm. he's doing it with spite and revenge and, and vengeance and it's not a pretty sight now if I was writing a different play about PJ I might have a different slant on him yes but, yeah but well but, he doesn't but appear from, he's from the of, eyes of my characters in this yeah. play he seems like a villain well also his treatment yeah. of Maeve his wife he, he yeah. you think well he he gave her the shop, but there's a kind of an ownership over her. Yeah, he He's not exactly want, empowering yeah. her in, in no, his actions no. towards her. Um, and of course, Oni becomes enchanted with this beautiful woman who's out of his league mm. and lives across and is, is walking across the street. And she she's quite enamoured with him because I think he's real. Yeah. You know. And and in a way that she doesn't see PJ, they, they develop her as having that kind of that kind of soul yeah, that's, yeah. that's needed John. and as you say maybe if we were writing a play about PJ yes. you'd feel differently that's about right. him that's right. but we only see him kind of through the window of the barbershop yes. uh, essentially the other aspect of the play that I noticed in the in the reading of the script which of course I'd need to see it to really to, to really know where it fits in but it struck me there's a lot of music in here and I was immediately thinking of the cavalcaders of course yes. your, your barbershop quartet of four men in a cobbler shop, yes, in that particular yeah. case, but quite definitely a barbershop quartet. Um, talk to me about the role of music in in this play, in, in in on such as we, where it fits into the to the overall telling of the story. Well, there's a kind of um, I, I was amazed because I looked at the at the the book that came out originally and the, the music in the background that they, they had to ask for permission to use mm. really astounded me. Actually, I didn't realize it was so much in it, but it, you know. I'm a musician, and it's everywhere. It's it's it's, it's everything to me. Yeah, you know, we, we uh, it's the rhythm and yeah. the poetry. It's it's everything. Um, but of course, uh, the main song in it is comes from the Whippenpoo song, which is a, a beautiful barbershop song. And the title of the play comes from that song as well. Uh, I'd hum a little bit if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, why not? We are poor little lambs who have lost our way. Ba, 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 we're little black sheep who have gone astray. Ba, 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 gentlemen songsters out on a spree, doomed from here to eternity. May the Lord have mercy on such as we. Ba, ba, ba. Oh, that's a lovely. That's a lo- and where does that song come from? Did you say the Whiff and Poo song? It's quite a famous uh, barbershop song. Hmm. 
And do we get it in? Uh, I wondered about the nature of the song when it's sung because there's a kind of a, a without giving too much a wake feel uh, late on in the play. You know, yes, there's, yeah. there's there's a feeling of a wake. We get song sung, and we also have a recitation. Um, there's a one-eyed yellow idol. Start on the and do you know? Yeah, it, it's a wake song. It's mm. a Christmas kind of feel. It's the mm. sing song. Um, and do we get do we get harmonised versions of it in this production, or is it a, a single voice like we? Just well, I'll heard? let you know tomorrow when I see the run, <laughs> the run through. When you see the yeah. run through, uh, but yes, uh, yeah, uh, we we do get it, get it, get a bit of bit of that hope, and uh, you know, it's almost John Ford, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, because yeah. I think you you well, you've, this has been said of your plays previously that there is a feeling of the Western. Uh, yes. About what you do. Is that here in this in this Absolutely. Well, absolutely yeah. How does it manifest itself in On Such As We, would you say? Well, I think the big shootout at the, at the end certainly is... Uh, yeah, there isn't an actual yeah, shootout, but there's, a, yeah. there's a kind of a, a, a head-to-head. It's one of those Shane moments when people uh, uh, beat the tar out of each other, you know, so... Um, and there's also a touch of d- d- um, high noon in there. So yes. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, yeah. all, uh, on this our wedding there. day. There's all of those are in um, there as well. That Mar- I'm, a, I was, I'm a big fan of Terence Davies' films. It's, you know, it's strange because John Ford and Terence Davies mm. seem poles apart. Yeah, but, yeah. but Terence, the beauty of Terence Davies and how he goes about his work is uh, so you know it's. It, it's kind of cinematic in many ways. This, this. Um, I'm asking a lot of Andrew Andrew Flynn, who directs. Who's this, directing? Uh, yeah. Um, but um, when you, when it came to revisiting it, because um, here we are in 2023, and it's a play set in 1992 with a Christmas. Yeah, it's the run up to. It's a wintry play. You said to me beforehand, which I think is true, rather than a Christmas play. It certainly doesn't have tinsel and and Christmas trees in the background. Did you have to adjust anything in any way, or did that 1992 setting mean that you could leave it as it was? No, I, I left it alone. I mean, I clipped and cut, and and, and um, mm. I believe Andrew has dipped back in and uh, rescued a, a little piece uh, that I had cut out, and um, uh, I'm kind of glad about that because. It's hard for a writer to know what should go and what should stay. You know, it's hard to know when, when you're you're, you're clipping mm. and cutting. I I do go back to my work all the time. Uh, I think the only the trilogy stays very much intact and the cavalcade stayed intact. But my other plays, I'm inclined to go back yeah, and have a, have a re and, and clip a reroute around. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll be happy to get to see it in its in its fullness in this particular run which is at the uh, Jerome Hines Theatre of the National Opera House in Wexford. And it runs from the 24th through on, 24th of November, that is, through until the 2nd of December. That's Billy Roach speaking to us about production of his play On Such As We from Decadent Theatre Company. Bernard Canavan is an Irish-born artist who left in 19, left here in 1959 when he was just 15 years of age. His illustrations have been published in radical and left-wing magazines including Oz, New Society and Peace News and Tribune. An exhibition of Bernard's deeply personal paintings curated by his friend and fellow artist John O'Hora is currently on view at the United Arts Club in Dublin. The paintings look back on Bernard's life when, as a young baby, he was taken from his mother and put in St Patrick's Orphanage 
in Black Rock. The expressive paintings, which called to mind the work of Paul Origo and Max Beckman, explore the power of the Catholic Church and its clerics, and it presents the lives of people warped by a theocratic state. The exhibition was opened by Uther on the Heron last week, and yesterday Keshihi went along to meet Bernard Canavan and the exhibition's curator, John O'Hara. John began a tour of the exhibition in front of an installation that is a baby's cot and a painting of a group of cots in a room looked over by holy statues. We're now in the main room where the exhibition Theocracy is hanging and the first three pieces are very much focused on the orphanage experience which Bernard had for the first four years of his life. He was taken from his mother when he was three days old. The third piece is almost like a self-portrait. It's called In the Free State. The painting on the wall is part of an installation which combines with the cot on the floor. It has images of his mother on the panels of the cot on the interior. It has documentation of his handwritten letter by his birth father and his birth mother apologising to the church for being late with payments after they have taken their, his, their baby away. Right. So John, here we have a baby's cot made of wood. This is all one piece of work. Yes, and this has his, an image of Bernard's mother. That's her handwriting and she's apologising for uh, Th- Thomas Lockhart, her boyfriend. They were due to be married. Both families were happy about the marriage, but he was born before the wedding, and the church took him from them. And, and there's another image here. She became a very successful model in America later on. This is authentic documentation of his birth certificate, which took, hap- took place in St. Pat's. But it was like he was brought up like everybody, like a feral child. I mean, there was no n- nurturing. He, he was never taught how to say a prayer, despite the fact that it was called St. Patrick's. Uh, he didn't know a nursery rhyme. He didn't know anything. And they, all be- they were all bedwetters. So the staff that came in the morning opened the windows, irrespective of what time of the year it was. They pulled the kids out of the cot, put, throw the mattress outside, no tumble dryers. Mattress was put back in an hour later, and that's what you slept on. No nappies. This installation that we're looking at, Bernard, yes. this tells the story in painting in and, paint, an, and uh, an object. Yes, that's right. So this tells the story, and all these pictures around the wall here, tells the story of a, an idea of God that I, had, I, had, I couldn't believe in. I woke up into, uh, I suppose, consciousness uh, as an infant, and I didn't, I didn't recognise the building I was in. I certainly didn't recognise all the cots and the strange... Uh, decorations for the children's bedroom, which was a Christ standing naked with blood dripping off his body. Uh, it was a st- large statue. None of it meant anything to me. So this is the world, this is my world for the first three and a half years of life without a mother. And that's one of the big things that leaves you without an identity. There was no love in the Catholic Church for me. Uh, in fact, I was regarded as a product of sin. And I suppose I'm still a product of sin. I don't mind that anymore. Why would you say that? Why would you say you're a product of sin? That's because because that, was, that, that was what they would tell me. She had done that uh, terrible thing. She had, she had had a baby without having the proper Catholic official imprimatur. So uh, this was apparently so bad that they would take the child off the mother. And it, it didn't just happen to me. It happened to thousands of Irish people. They would take the mother off the, uh, from the child and they would sell the child and make money out of it. I was, t- I was very lucky. I was rescued by a woman, a very interesting Irish woman. Uh, the lady who brought me up, Margaret Rose Canavan, who had been born in South America and come back to nurse some of her 
uh, South American uncles in the middle of Ireland. She was a charming woman. She never raised her temper. Uh, well, no, she did raise her temper, but she never used expletives or any words that were uh, forbidden. She was a very, very nice woman and a very generous woman. In fact, she lavished all her her, her and her husband's savings, and we both had to go to England. And so we came to England, and that's how I've been in England now for uh, 60 years. And she had taught me to read, which was one of the greatest things that I had. She was a very stern lady, and she certainly taught me to read in record short time. I was always have a dictionary in my hand. Unfortunately, this, these were, the 1950s were terrible years in Ireland, uh, the devil era years in which something like a million and a half people left Ireland and, and settled in England. Uh, the, great, the war had, of course, uh, done away with a lot of the English population. And uh, so I, and I was good, at, I, I began to draw when I came to England. I drew for all the underground papers, all the radical papers. And so I was interested in that whole world of who were you, and what was your identity. And of course I didn't have an identity. I didn't have an identity for the first 60 years. And then one day I phoned up this lady in, down in, in, uh, in Zengarov. And she said, who is this? And I said, it's Bernard. She said, don't tell me anymore. She said, I know who you are. And that was the first when I was 60, 65. That was the first time in my life anybody has ever said to me, I know who you are. And so my pictures are all about who I am. First one in this one is called the miracle of rural electrification. So we're, we're in a, a rural room, a house, before electricity. The family are in adoration, seeing the rosary. The light is coming from the fire and the sacred heart picture. But really, this is a devotional experience. But Tinita Tikaram, the singer years ago, had a song called The World Outside Your Window. Outside your window is modernity. It's another light. And you have the telegraph poles and the pylons. Um, you know, the idea of enlightening. And there's a little fellow standing in the doorway. That might be Bernard. I don't know. But he's kind of figuring which is the enlightener. Is it to believe in this narrative in, and be kept in a cocoon or to go out into the world. Where are all these clerical ones over here? Okay, so we'll jump a few. And here you have the anatomy lesson. Again, I hung these as a pair because formerly the, there's a, a, an oval sh uh, depiction of uh, clerics around a table. Only this time it's a female cadaver where they're wondering, what is a woman? How does it work? I mean, did, did God blow on Adam's rib and create a female? You know, anyone can decide for themselves. So there's a naked woman lying yeah, on, the, uh, on the anatomy yeah. table and there's the clerics gathered around them. This is a funny piece, though. There's one cleric down on the ground yeah. with his face in his hands. He can't, he can't, I don't know, stomach oh, yeah, 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 or anything. Maybe, but even though the female apparently is dead, he, 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 it's too much for him. He just kind of, you know, can't cope with it. Uh, this one too is very evocative, it's called Nailing Up the Shame Box. You have a young woman coming out the side of the confessional after uh, having had her confessions and she's told that she's a sinner. And I mean, she may have had a young priest who has taken the vow of celibacy and has entertained himself by inquiring exactly what she was doing with her boyfriend when she was committing sin. Um, but the older lady is nailing up the door where the definer of sin 
is occupied in the confessional. And it reminds me of Paul Brady's song, The Island, when he sings, we've sung too much of that before. Do you know that line? She's, that to me, when I read that, it says, look, we've had enough of this sin business. We're women, and you wouldn't be where you are if you didn't have a mother. And you wouldn't be born if there hadn't been sex in your mother's life. Well, it's, it's very, very simple. Uh, uh, all these uh, women were encouraged, to t- and um, even my own girlfriends, where they were Catholic, were encouraged to tell the priest what they'd been doing the night before with their boyfriend. That was ridiculous. I mean, that was pornography. That was sheer hours of pornography being told to the priest. And of course the priest encouraged it. But it, it had nothing to do with religion and nothing to do with uh, anything to do with Christ. So here we've got two pretty large paintings on the back wall, which one is called the priest's housekeeper, where he's you know got his concubine or got his lover or whatever as a sexual uh, man. Uh, and then the next piece is called the fall, which is an evocative term in religious terms. But uh, again, you have the priest kind of falling out of the bed where his lover is hanging on to him, where he's might be knowing that they're going against the law or the rules of celibacy that they've taken. And behind the woman is her, two of her infants. She probably has children, just simply called the fall. So do you, are, you think, are you saying the painting, Barnard, yes. are saying, well, this was happening? Yes. They were having sex. They were having sex. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think we, 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 I mean, there are books every week, a new book or a new film comes out. Uh, showing exactly what they were up to. And some of them were uh, 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 rather nice old clerics and you think uh, nothing strange about them. But actually some of them were up to extraordinary things. I don't need to spell them out. I think everybody knows. Just remember for a moment Peter Tyrrell, for instance, a man from Letter Frack. Yes, that was a man who had been through had been Letter Frack. Who came back. And, and asked them why they had done this to him, why they had beat him every day and had sex with him every night with a baby. Peter Tyrrell poured petrol on himself in London and burned himself to death in Hampstead Heath. That was shocking. And the fact that nobody acknowledged that, nobody in the church acknowledged that, that was shocking. Uh, again, as I was talking to John, there are those really two powerful paintings called The Innocence, mm-hmm. and they are of a cleric again, but in, sh- in deep shadow. I was very influenced by Caravaggio, because we're all influenced by Caravaggio, because Caravaggio in the Counter-Reformation had put, uh, put in powerful emotional scenes, terrible scenes of St. Peter being crucified upside down and all the other things that, were, uh, that we had. And I had all these wonderful stories before me, and so of course I would paint some of this. And, uh, and they are sinister. I, I would give to the church the sinisterness that they previously had given to me as a, as a child. I would, I would show what kind of world they inhabited. And, you know, I don't need to spell it out. I see. No, but that's, that, that's very powerful or astute what you're just saying. You're saying you experienced it as yes. a three-year-old. As a three-year-old. So you could see what the paraphernalia and the imagery yes. Yes. and the, the bleeding body and everything yes. can do to an institutionalised Absolutely, child. absolutely. I could never go back to the church. So when I came to England, I never went back to the church. Bernard, if you, if you could, did you get reunited with your birth family? I, I did, but only after a great deal of difficulty. I had, first of all, uh, I couldn't get anything for the nuns much. But because I went so early, uh, I, I have been looking into this since 
Once I knew my mother was dead, that's a strange thing to say, but once I knew my mother was dead, I knew that I wouldn't be bursting into anybody else's family, which was a great anxiety. You have two anxieties. First of all, you don't want to insult the families that actually helped you and saved you. And then you don't want to turn up in somebody else's family and say, have you, have you forgotten about me? Because that would uh, ruin his, their family. So once I knew my mother was dead, then I knew that I could... Uh, we, we, we would both be grieving after the same woman, but it wouldn't really matter. My original mother, she went to uh, uh, America as a model, but anyway, she did, and she had uh, two girls, uh, and I went over to see them. Uh, we, had, we had to negotiate our, our, our way, uh, because uh, it's difficult uh, if you haven't seen your parents in all that time. And, and they have, she had become something quite different. She said she wasn't Irish, that she was English, and that she had lived her life, all her life in England. And she, had, uh, she was uh, quite a clever girl, obviously, because she had picked up a lot of the graces that you need to convince people who have been rich for many generations that she was true blue. And did she ever say that she had had a son? No, but, but, but uh, her gynaecologist uh, told uh, her husband that this was not the first baby uh, that she had. And so she invented a whole story of a Mexican baby and even sent him a photograph of her that she was doing very well in Texas now and was an international tennis star. I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to disappoint her. I wouldn't have been able to fulfil that role. There you go, Bernard. May not have become a tennis star, but he did find success as a painter and illustrator. Theocracy, paintings by Bernard Canavan, curated by John O'Hora, is at the United Arts Club in Dublin until Sunday the 19th. Access to that exhibition in the evening time. Joe Beth Young and Serious Child, also known as Alan Young, are currently on their Shadow Navigation Tour of Ireland. They play Ballyvaughan tonight in County Clare and they're in Kerry, Dublin and Waterford over the weekend. The song Light a Candle is inspired by Alan's brother and his selfless dedication to rescuing Ukrainian children as part of the Save Ukraine charity. Here is that song, Light a Candle. I find myself one evening sitting in the of a church I've never seen before With nothing left to lose There you are, a little taste of Light a Candle with Serious Child. That's Alan Young and Joe Beth Alan Young and Joe Beth Young. Uh, they'll be playing Ireland this week and you'll find out full information on their gig on Joe Beth... Their gigs, rather, on JoeBethYoung.com. That is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Paula Shields, Liam Murphy and Niall Fitzmorrells researched the broadcast coordinator this evening was Ollie Hamilton Damien Chanel was on sound and the programme was produced by Kay Sheehy I will be back with you here on RT Radio 1 tomorrow night at 7 o'clock and among my guests Paula Meehan will be in to talk about her new poetry collection really looking forward to talking to her about that that's tomorrow night 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 John Creedon will be with you after the news 